0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello everyone and welcome back to New Books uh, Network in Russian and Eurasian Studies. I am your host uh, and the host of this channel, Polina Popova. Today uh, we will be interviewing two scholars, Jonathan Daly and Leonid Trofimov, about their new book that was just published in 2023. The book title is Seven Myths of the Russian Revolution. And my first question will be, of course, to my guest to please introduce yourself. Uh, Jonathan, can you please start? Sure. Um, I've probably been working
0: on the Russian Revolution for 30 years. Uh, I started my dissertation um, even before that, and it focused on the Russian security police running from 1866 to 1917, and of course, culminating with the revolution itself. And um, Leonid and I have been working with Hackett Publishing Company for, uh, well, almost two decades now. And uh, our first book was a collection of documents about the Russian Revolution. The second, Place the Russian Revolution in a Global Context. And this third book, um, also, of course, on the um, Russian Revolution has to do with myths and I think the reason why we became interested in this topic was the fact that it uh, that wherever you turn in regard to the Russian Revolution there are a number of myths or presuppositions or falsehoods or claims um, that are inaccurate that are associated with many different aspects of the uh, of the revolution and it therefore seemed important uh, to zero in on that, Specific topic and divide it up. It turns out into seven myths because that's the format of the book series that we worked with at Hackett: the seven myths of um, of different topics, and in this case of the Russian Revolution. So, um, yeah, that's our main. That has been our main focus as it as a team uh, for for a number of years now.
1: I see, Leonid.
2: Well, I was um, born in uh, the Soviet Union, the country that. No longer exists and so i observed another important revolutionary transformation which was of course the collapse of communism in the soviet union in eastern europe so i think that was something that had been at the back of my mind when i moved to chicago and i started uh, studying some aspects of soviet history in more detail i do not have such an in-depth and such a lasting sort of record dealing with the Russian Revolution as Jonathan. I sort of started more with the Cold War era. I was interested in that particular conflict. But then eventually my interest expanded, and I think uh, overall this could be defined as um, Russia's sort of involvement in the world, in the 20th century world, the Soviet Union, period Russia, post-Soviet Russia, and so forth. And the Russian Revolution, of course, is a global event. And it's something that affected the lives of hundreds of millions of people. And uh, that essentially the reason why I grew so much interested in this topic, uh, which, again, I look at from the broader sort of perspective of Russia's interactions with the world, which could help the good sides and the bad sides, of course. So that's my story.
1: Yeah, and you, can you also talk uh, talk about your academic background, in Jonathan, uh, you as well. Uh, yeah. Where do you teach? Where do you? Well, see?
2: right now you I teach, teach at university, and um, I, um, I received my PhD at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And uh, in my dissertation, I uh, focused on the onset of the Cold War, as I mentioned earlier. More specifically, the role that the Soviet media played on this. And I think uh, I would use this opportunity to express my profound gratitude to. Jonathan, who was my academic advisor? <laughs> I'm so happy that uh, our collaboration kind of started on that level, then moved to another level, and uh, ultimately, uh, uh, I think, uh, developed into these three books that Jonathan mentioned.
0: Um, nice. I can add also, of course, that I'm a professor at the University of Illinois at Chicago, I've been there since 1992, um, and I've yeah been focusing on Russian history all this time. Uh, for the most part,
1: I see. So now I would like to know if this interest in the common myths about the Russian Revolution came from your um, both of your experience in teaching or communicating with general public about the topic. Because very often, right when people hear you study uh, Russia or Soviet Union, people ask the first question is Russian Revolution. That's the one thing I general public heard about. Or uh, did it come from the research experience? And this framework of mythology as the sort of a cultural and historical phenomenon is especially interesting uh, to me. You wrote in the preface uh, to the book that it's a function of our memory to remember best not what is most accurate, but what is most colorful or graphic. And I wonder, isn't this something we see in the media nowadays all over the world, the creation of political and historical uh, myths uh, by all kinds of political actors? And if, yes, if you agree with this, would your book help your readers to be more critical and analytical when dealing with this kind of contemporary myths?
2: Well, it's great question a very important question why sort of we started doing all this and well i i'm happy to to observe that that if we're dealing with students uh, my experience of of uh, teaching uh the russian revolution and other history topics to students actually is more uh, encouraging perhaps because i can i think that students with different backgrounds perhaps because they live in this environment where, of course, there are many, many myths around us uh, perpetuated by social media and so forth, many of them developed ways to handle that, right? And so people with a liberal arts background have a fairly in-depth knowledge, understanding of history. People with business background, well, if you look at... uh, how propaganda works uh, they sometimes could analyze uh, propaganda and myths even better than i can when they look at various posters and so forth they sort of remember how marketing works and all that so in other words different walks of life help deal with myths so i'm in that sense more encouraged to see how sort of students how students uh, deal with these growing sort of numbers of myths in our world. What I'm more disturbed about is, of course, the general public and how uh, pervasive and how pernicious these myths could be in the general public. And uh, uh, that's something that I think uh, uh, kind of triggered my interest in approaching the Russian Revolution from that perspective. How are myths made? What makes them so powerful? Why people believe in them and that sort of thing.
0: Mm -hmm. I would only uh, add to that, I suppose, that um, it seems in particular the nature of the Bolshevik government, the Bolshevik regime, was um, propitious, if you will, toward the fabrication of myths insofar as uh, the leaders of the Bolshevik regime had a goal of establishing sort of a transforming the world, overturning the world, as Trotsky said, making a socialism in a country that they recognized was not going to be an easy place to build socialism in as they understood it. And therefore, it came sort of easily to them to propagate stories, uh, uh, assertions, claims about what they were doing, about what they achieved that did not reflect reality. And that became, if you will, part and parcel of their uh, system of government, their society, uh, as a result of which myth making became a central part of the entire Bolshevik and ultimately Soviet enterprise. And in order to win over the population, both inside of Russia and abroad, weaving these kinds of, of stories that did not necessarily correspond to reality became an important aspect of everything they did. And convinced a lot of people, as we discovered in uh, our second book about the global impact of the Russian Revolution, convinced many people around the world that what they were doing was better than they than <laughs> what actually they were achieving. And as a result of that, I don't think you can get away from just the whole problem of myths and storytelling and, and misrepresentation uh, within the context of the revolution. I suppose the more radical uh, changes one is attempting to achieve in a place where it's difficult to make those achievements stick, uh, the more likely it is you're going to sort of make stuff up, if you will. And Um, I
2: guess I can add perhaps a particular example about how lasting some of these myths could be uh, in relation to your question, Pauline, if that's okay. Uh, And you talked about how we write that uh, people tend to remember what's most colorful quite often. They also sometimes tend to remember what they want to remember. And I and I remember, speaking of remembering, that conversation that I had with an old lady on the uh, train crossing uh, the Siberia on the Trans-Siberian Railroad. And that old lady was just reminiscing about the glorious Soviet Union, how wonderful the Soviet Union was, how the 1930s was in particular such a great time, and how people lived in great friendship, and how everybody cared about one another, and so forth. And... Uh, I, there was no way for me to challenge any of this, obviously. So I just asked some follow-up questions. I asked her about her family. Turned out, they live in the collective farm. Turned out that her mother actually uh, could no longer walk because she was ordered with other collective farm members to go and cut the grass and icy sort of water and meadows and all that. And so for years after that, she could not even walk. And yet, from the standpoint of that, of that uh, old lady, that was not really that important. It's that glorious myth, right, of the Soviet Union that was more powerful. And that, again, reminds us, I think, of how important this is on historical level, but also on psychological level. And that creates a challenge because neither Jonathan nor myself are psychologists. So we are sort of touching on these issues and we are fascinated by them, but we recognize that this is a kind of a cross-section of history and cognitive psychology. So that's how we think about that.
1: Definitely, this is very. The story is fascinating. I mean, historically speaking, it's terrible, of course, that this woman lived through uh, such hard times. But uh, m- myth making as a survival mechanism, right? It's it's, it's right. another fascinating topic. Well, okay, let's get to the to the myths then. So I will begin with the very first myth, and that is Grigori Rasputin. And I should say, from just my experience teaching Russian history uh, and Soviet history, uh, Rasputin can easily be one of the best-known Russians, uh, so to speak, in Americans' uh, minds due to the popularity of the uh, 1997 animated film and subsequent musical um, and even the rock opera that uh, I think you guys mentioned, Uh, and of course the Bonnie M. song. So, in the book, you uh, demythologize his persona. With Rasputin, you admit his power over the Tsar's family, but argue that his political influence has been grossly exaggerated. And his role in bringing down the empire was unique, but not essential. I'm quoting here. So, can you please elaborate on that? How and why this myth, do you think, about almighty demon-like status was created?
2: Well, uh, to me, and of course, uh, Jonathan will probably add um, a lot to what I have to say, I think there are three factors in particular that make Rasputin such a demonic figure. Number one, he comes from a religious milieu. In that milieu, which is sort of orthodox Christian, but at the same time, not necessarily establishment uh, sort of uh, driven or shaped. If someone claims to have some sort of supernatural powers or inspiration or to sort of be of a special kind of a personal that, well then, yes, uh, the, the assumption is that perhaps the, these are divine powers. But then anyone who starts questioning whether these are divine powers, where else would these powers come from? Well, of course, it's Satan, right? So in other words, it's the religious milieu itself that encourages either uh, kind of uh, glorification and sanctification of uh, particular uh, figures involved in religious activities, or when disillusionment happens or disappointment or doubt, then it's immediately, you know, from God to Satan. And that's exactly how some people like Ili- Monk, Leodore and others around Rasputin start talking about him so that's one thing that contributes to the demonic image among some the second one is secrecy of the uh, Russian Imperial Court because it is not easy to find out what exactly is going on there and uh, secrecy well of stimulates people's imaginations and of course the beginning of the 20th century is this remarkable time in russian culture where you see enormous outbursts of creativity of imaginative uh performances and ballets and 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 music and art and so forth and so people sort of have their imagination run wild so that's the second factor the third one is frustration because every time anyone relatively close to nicholas and alexander tries to tell them that Rasputin is not really a man of God, is not really as sort of a a kind of prophet-like figure. Then they meet with resistance, and then they start looking for more arguments. And so even as all of these people around Nicholas and Alexander get frustrated, then they themselves start thinking about Rasputin in even more sort of demonic terms. So those three factors, I think, are at play here.
0: And I would add two other elements. One of them is just the attraction that people feel toward biography. Most of my uh, research has been on institutions and movements and structures, but very little focused on biography as such. My most recent project has been an intellectual biography of Richard Pipes, and I was struck, I've been struck time and again about by how interested my colleagues are in this project when they weren't interested in my other projects previously, because I think they they were more dry. And it's easier to relate to a person uh, than to an institution. People feel more compelled. There's more human interest involved in knowing about an individual. And secondly, uh, I've just been reading a book manuscript on the uh, Penny Press, the Kapieka Press in Russia on the eve of the revolution. And the Focus there is on the fact that these very inexpensive newspapers that were meant for not very well-educated people uh, presented everything they could about news in the form of sensation. That is to say that they tried to attract people's attention uh, by the drama involved in the news, right? So if you can combine those two things, that is biography, that is an individual that has human interest... And and secondly, uh, something that is dramatic, <laughs> and unusual, and surprising, and maybe gory and violent, etc. Uh, then you are going to uh, achieve a kind of matrix of of powerful human interest um, that people will be more attracted to than they are to the drier institutional phenomena, facts, and things like that. Just based on on teaching. Um, it is absolutely the case that, as you mentioned, it's not just Americans, I think, probably around Europe as well, uh, if you had to name a character or a figure within the Russian Revolution, <laughs> most people would probably, more people would would point to Rasputin than they would to Lenin or Trotsky uh, or Stalin or many other characters. At least that would be my, if they know anything, if they know only one person, it's they're more likely to know about Rasputin.
1: That's true, I agree. So, okay, so we, can we talk about the, the the next myth that you mentioned in the book, uh, and that is the betrayal myth, uh, which is um, a myth about the coup as the major cause for the revolution and the fall of the monarchy. And indeed, as you wrote in the book, the revolution spread incredibly fast, so the myth isn't baseless, and um, you also mentioned General Alexiev's uh, case in the book um, which kind of sort of confirms it in a way, um, confirms uh, the, the theory about the coup. Um, and there were some elements of the truth uh, to it. So thus, I wonder if we can discuss this myth um, in particular and in general, how often historical myths actually do have some truths in them. Um, can you um, briefly uh, talk about uh, what boosted the uh, the popularity of uh, this particular myth
2: absolutely absolutely and this is where we uh, ran into this very question how narrow or broad our definition of a myth should be uh, if uh, something of, uh, that's completely false is essentially a myth that we're dealing with it's easier to perhaps to refute right but at the same time if you look at how many Uh, Myths in the broader sense are circulating around us, right? Distortions, uh, sort of incomplete uh, half truths. If you look at how often they're used by political figures, public activists, authoritarian governments, how these sort of uh, semi truths or half truths are, are used to, again, perpetuate propaganda, right? To shape or Alter people's worldviews. We thought that it would be important to discuss some of these half truths and uh, inaccuracies. Uh, and um, in that case, of course, there's no easy, uh, easy recipe. Right? It's a bit easier to. Arguing to show that Rasputin was not really a, a holy man or a prophet, right, or a de- demon, right, that sort of thing. Here, immersion becomes necessary. We have to immerse into that environment. We have to immerse into the choices and the concerns that people had at the time and so forth, and recognize, of course, certain elements of conspiracy that existed in February 1917. There's not a lot of evidence that the generals were involved in any conspiracy, and Alexeyev, there is some rumor, some hearsay that he may have heard something, but again, not, not enough evidence to make any firm conclusions. Politicians did get involved in some conspiratorial activities, again, some of them. But our goal in that chapter was to immerse the reader into the dynamics of the February Revolution, when the authority collapses in Petrograd, and that's where essentially this uh, spontaneous, to a large degree spontaneous, popular revolution takes place. That's the elephant elephant in the room. And so in this sort of half myths and half or half uh, sort of falsehoods and uh, misconceptions or distortions, uh, what happens is that people start sort of um, missing that elephant, right? <laughs> In the room which is the most important factor right and then of course uh, the question is uh, whether there was a conspiracy but also whether there was a betrayal and betrayal of course is a very kind of emotionally charged term and we see Nicholas and Alexandra sort of believing this and uh, it sort of almost makes people feel good about themselves how they are innocent victims of these horrible forces uh, the Nazis of course used a lot of this sort of similar rhetoric when they talked about stabbing the back of the German army and that sort of thing And um, uh, that's why I think betrayal has a special emotional connotation. And that's important to make particular myths and half-truths and distortions stick. They have to be emotionally appealing. So that's what we try to show in the chapter also.
0: Another aspect of this also is that these myths uh, or of betrayal or the revolution was actually carried out by a conspiracy or was the fruit of a conspiracy also responded to, spoke to uh, beliefs that many actors at the time had about their own country. So the idea that the, mass, the, the vast majority of ordinary Russians would rise up and, um, and demand the end to the monarchy, let's say, was something that for, for Nicholas was inconceivable because Nicholas himself and, and Alexandra, reinforced by Alexandra and by Rasputin, by the way, uh, that Nicholas was a popular leader and that everyone really loved him and it was only the radicals who were turning or trying to turn the people against him. Uh, so it, it would be impossible for him to imagine that, any th- that, a, that the revolution could have brought about his overthrow except if it were a conspiracy of evil men, right? Um, and the same thing, I think, also on the other side, that is to say that the radicals also thought uh, the Bolsheviks, the Marxists in particular, thought that the workers had a particular goal in mind, and the and the goal was dictated to them uh, by. Uh, I mean, not he, they would never say the world historical spirit, but that the there was a kind of built in tendency toward a proletarian revolution, and if workers. Uh, or other ordinary people sought, in fact, just to rule their own lives uh, and maybe in collaboration with people of other classes, this was inconceivable as well, that it had to be, uh, there had to be a portrayal uh, of the working class by different elements within the society, right? So so the point is that there are preconceived ideas about how society should evolve or the nature of the social categories and, and groups and movements that if, If something like the revolution happens that doesn't fit with the conception of this or that observer, then the easy uh, choice is to imagine that it had to be done in some kind of under, there had to be an underhanded foul play involved in the events.
2: Yeah, uh, I just uh, can add one specific example from a particular document or a series of documents, and that's correspondence between Nicholas and Alexandra, and Alexandra in those letters continuously uh, is sort of c- confirming what Jonathan just said—that you know that uh, her belief that the Russian people love the Tsar, right? That they're sort of holy and kind of that they have this communion of sorts—and then at some point in the course of the February Revolution, it becomes impossible even for Alexander to deny the fact that there are dozens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets, in the army, and so forth, who do not like the czar, right? And she struggles to somehow explain this in her worldview, and she can't. So, yes, she talks about treason and betrayal, and then she says, well, all these people are, they are infected somehow, infected, right, by some kind of a a, a virus or something, right? That's the only explanation she could come up with because, again, the reality contradicts her worldview.
1: I see. This is really heartbreaking uh, how, you know, a person sort of discovers um, that this myth uh, that they created for themselves isn't true. Right. Yeah. Um, OK, so then the next myth of Lenin as a secret German agent. And I should say that um, this is the most uh, familiar myth to me. And it's a very popular... um, (laughs) Many people in Russia, in other words, uh, don't call it a myth, but call it a fact. And uh, it... um, Thus, I'm wondering... um, (sighs) regarding this extremely popular myth among Russian-speaking public, would the general audience be disappointed in you um, debunking this myth? And uh, from your book, I found out that Germany did assist Lenin uh, with his travel, uh, after all, allowing him to pass through the territory, didn't they? But you also sort of try to depart from the whole idea of Lenin was a German spy so can you please elaborate on that
2: Um, absolutely well the short answer to your question whether people will be disappointed those who sort of believe in this myth uh, when this myth is debunked I think the short answer is no because it is almost impossible to debunk a myth uh, for those who believe it okay that's sort of my preliminary observation so What we can do is just sort of help people, again, understand the reality better, right? Immerse uh, themselves in the reality of 1917, where there are many different groups and many different individuals pursuing different goals. So, on one philosophical level, this chapter is about human agency, right? About who we are as individuals and why we act in a particular way. And uh, that sort of uh, perception of the Bolsheviks as German puppets, right? As German agents and even as German spies, as the provisional government tried to prove, ultimately distorts reality and deprives, and did deprive at the time, of course, people who believe in this ability to understand that the Bolsheviks are, in fact, very real people with real agendas of their own. And they're not some kind of strange aliens that arrived in Russia of either by train from Germany, or just of course uh, in the case of lenin that's exactly how he traveled and many other bolsheviks as, as well but look the rakes of the bolshevik party swelled in 1917 to hundreds of thousands so there were very good reasons why support for the bolsheviks began to grow why the bolshevik party began to grow in 1917 and so uh, our sort of hope was to show that uh, that uh, sort of simplifying right oversimplifying explaining away certain people that you don't like, right, certain actors that you don't like, sort of calling them puppets or spies and so forth, will actually make it more difficult for us to understand uh, the complexity of uh, reality itself.
0: I'll just add to that, uh, that it is a tendency of human beings to simplify and to imagine that the way that historical developments unfold is relatively simple and you can find three or four key features and point to them in among historians we say generally there is no such thing as a monocausal explanation that is there's no one thing that explains all of the events at a given point right every single event has many different causes, not two, not four, not six, but probably hundreds, some of them are more important than others, right? Um, And so, but the idea that there could be a diversity of interests between two parties that are functioning in the same direction is maybe a little hard already for people to grasp. So the Germans thought they were using Lenin and Lenin thought he was using the Germans and both of them actually were. And you could say that in some sense Lenin did help the Germans um, unconsciously. That is, he was not trying to help them. He wanted to make a revolution in Russia. <laughs> and so he went to Russia and, and by and in order to make the revolution, he was going to take Russia out of the war, because the war was an imperialist war from his point of view. Now that was good for the Germans because if he took, if he took Russia out of the war, that was going to help their war effort, right? Um But it wasn't because he wanted specifically to hurt Russia and help Germany. Actually, he thought that the revolution couldn't survive or couldn't prosper in Russia unless Germany helped Russia (laughs) with its industrial development capacity, right? Because Russia was a backward country. You couldn't really have a socialist revolution there from his point of view. The only way you could do it is if the Germans would turn around and help him. Well, how on earth are they going to do that? Well, they're going to do that because Uh, the Bolsheviks were going to appeal to the German proletariat in the hope and expectation that the German workers would rise up against the German government, overthrow the German government, and then come to the aid of the Bolsheviks. And both of them would then proceed to build the revolution. So that's like a super complex web of different intentions and expectations, right? That is very close, I think, to the truth. Um, But- Much more complicated than the face of it might have seemed, right, if you just say, well, the Germans are helping the Bolsheviks, the Bolsheviks are gaining German help, therefore the Bolsheviks are German agents, right? That's a simple explanation, but it's inadequate because there were many, many more uh, pieces of that puzzle.
2: Right, and uh, if I could add a little bit to that, and, and that's one of our intents, uh, in, uh, in intentions of this book, is not necessarily to convey with full certainty. You know, here's what happened, period. No, of course, as scholars, we are always open to new evidence, right? So our goal was not necessarily to just uh, completely sort of uh, turn the page on German involvement in the Russian Revolution. Rather, it was a sort of an invitation to consider the evidence first. So when there is not enough evidence for things like you know conspiracy of the generals, then we have to recognize that. When there is a certain amount of evidence of the German involvement in the Russian Revolution, that's what we can recognize. So is it possible that at some point we will discover evidence on the paper trail that will reveal far greater amount of resources or, money that the Germans sort of poured into the Bolsheviks' uh, party and so forth. It is possible. It is possible. We cannot deny that necessarily. But so we have to keep an open mind. However, even in that case, would that necessarily validate the sort of perception of the Bolsheviks as German spies and German puppets? Of course not. So that was our
1: point. Interesting. That's, I think that's the beauty of history, that it's always ongoing. I mean, history as a study, as a research.
2: Always oh. has to be open-ended yeah.
1: Exactly. So next, the um, Anastasia myth, of course, and that was actually the first myth that I thought of when I saw um, the title of your book without even reading it. And can we discuss the insane popularity of this myth in pop culture and films and historical fiction? Can we also talk if this is due to the the still, still going historical nostalgia for the long gone Russian empire or is it simply a human desire to, be, to believe in this sort of beautiful fairy tales? And again, as far as I know, Anastasia, along with Rasputin, is one of the most popular figures from modern Russian history, which is ironic, as I felt from reading your book and from my common knowledge of Russian history, is that that is one of the myth that is very easily debunked.
2: Well, uh, and it's sort of refreshing then to go back to the myths in the narrowest sense of the word. Of course, she was not Grand Duchess Anastasia, right? This uh, uh, Frau Undenkamp, right? As uh, she was uh, called, Schwantsovska was her, her real uh, name, last name, was uh, was a fraud, was an imposter. Okay, so this is the, the most sort of narrow definition of a myth possible. And yet it was very powerful. Uh, and I think Jonathan already covered so much uh, ground about that when he talked about the importance of personalities. Indeed, when we study institutions, uh, policies, organizations, structures, we do not have direct experience of all that uh, in its fullness. However, we all have direct experience of a personality of our own personality right of personalities around us and that's why it's easier for us to relate to other personalities and with major events like world wars like uh, revolutions we often think about them in terms of personalities robespierre napoleon right hitler that sort of thing right and so the russian revolution is a case and point but i would also add that again every myth in some ways is unique here you can see what contributed to its rise people want to believe uh, and in hopes, right? In something that is hopeful. They often refuse to believe the worst. The entire family slaughtered. Well, people often look for any rays of hope. What if someone survived, right? And then also uncertainty, because when some of the people who knew Anastasia um, encountered this uh, lady, they were afraid to make a mistake. What if there's just one chance out of 100 that this is in fact the real Grand Duchess? Denying her that chance would be a tremendous moral burden to these people. And that's why some people are hesitant. Some people, well, of course, as time goes by, it's even harder than to be certain, right? And that's precisely what she capitalizes on.
0: I I would just add that it occurs to me that both of them are the most, as you point out, Polina, well-known myths, fairy tales, fairytale characters, mythical characters from the entire Revo- Russian Revolution and maybe even from the entire history of Russia, <laughs> at least among foreigners, like Amer- among Americans, let's say. And they're the only two about which you could make an animated movie or in which their they main, main character is the animated movie. And it strikes me that they're kind of like the light and dark versions, right? One of them is a dark demonic type and the other is a light hopeful type. And it's not perhaps surprising that those are therefore the more more, um, captivating mythological figures from maybe the entirety of Russian history, which is interesting.
1: Interesting. I see. Um, So now uh, let's get to the next myth, the Judeo-Bolshevik myth. And uh, that was I should admit the most captivating and hard to read for me as I couldn't help but think of how Jewish um, history and history in general repeats itself uh, in this sort of mythology creation around the Jews as the eternal others, right? I'm taking this, of course, in quotation marks. Uh, So you state that the overwhelming majority of Jewish people in Russia were neither conspirators nor revolutionaries. But then how and why do you think this longstanding jew hatred uh, promoted and put into a whole myth at the time can you explain this to our listeners and how this myth was born and how it was developed and by the way i wanted to note that i was um sort of surprised but also not surprised to find out about that Nazi Germans used the same kind of narratives and othering um, and political tactics during World War II equating Stalin to the Jewish uh, Satan. You even have this illustration on page 120 of the book with a poster from 1942 um, from from occupied Ukraine, right, where Stalin is presented as uh, the Jewish Satan.
2: Right. Yes. Uh, well, there are certain uh, parallels here with the earlier myth about betrayal and conspiracy and so forth, because these um, this particular myth is also perpetuated by uh, the emigres uh, who are sort of mostly pro monarchy, certainly pro status quo, right? And they just find it very hard to accept that there were fundamental flaws in imperial social order, in imperial political order and they explain away the revolution, right? And how they do that? Well, they point at visible minorities. If there is a minority actively involved in the revolution, of course, there were many Jewish revolutionaries. It's easier to identify them and to explain away the collapse of the monarchy, to explain away the revolution by saying, look, this is a conspiracy right, by the Jews and that sort of thing. So again, it's a similar dynamic, right? They, 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 these people do not want to recognize the reality for what it is and the revolutionary sort of uh, momentum for what it is so they explained it away that way uh, personally again when I was doing this uh, research and I think this is true about any particular topic any particular chapter uh, that uh, that uh, we worked on we always find something new right we when we write about something it's not because we already know everything that we want to write about we quite often discover new aspects of particular topics as we uh, do research. And to me, that that extent of cross-fertilization, Polina, as you just mentioned, between the uh, Russian sort of monarchical emigres and the German anti-Semites and the Nazis, uh, but also others, uh, is quite remarkable. And you see that uh, that happened in the 1920s quite a bit. It is also interesting how eventually that sort of cross-culturalization begins to to dissipate a bit because all these uh, Russian monarchists in Germany who come to Germany with the sort of complaints about the Jews and sort of the uh, sort of Jewish conspiracy and so forth, yes, for a while the uh, sort of the Nazis, Nazi activists listened to them, but then at some point the, these emigres uh, discovered that they themselves are viewed by the Nazis as inferior because, of course, they're Slavs, and many many Nazis believe that the uh, Slavic people are undermentioned and sort of inferior and so forth. So there's some sad irony here in the way uh, the Russian immigrants try to find sort of their sort of uh, their spot in in uh, Nazi Germany.
1: Isn't that inevitable that one myth would uh, lead to the creation of another? I'm sorry to interrupt.
2: Of course, you're not interrupting. This place the, the vacuum never remains. There's always something that's going to fill it in, unless we change the uh, overall environment and uh, the, uh, the the sort of the overall st- structure, mental structure that uh, that will help us to understand the world in more with no more nuance, with uh, more uh, more complexity and all that.
0: And I would add only uh, in regard to Jewish people in pre-revolutionary Russia, uh, that in most traditional societies, uh, there is a sort of sense among most people that everybody has their place, and that there's um, there's an us and a them, and there's there are that, those groups that are accepted, those groups that are um, part of, of our culture, and the, those groups that are not part of our culture. And it's really an only in modern societies that people come to become more comfortable with a variety of different... Uh, backgrounds and cultures and religions, et cetera, et cetera. And in the case of of the Jews in Russia, from the time of Catherine the Great, when several million were added to the Russian Empire because of conquest, um, they were forced to live within a particular area that's called the Pale of Settlement. And because of the nature of the Jewish uh, culture, which emphasized literacy, like it was important for them to read their holy books, uh, there was a much higher level of literacy among Jewish people in the Russian Empire than of ordinary everybody else, basically. And 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 there was not the same kind of division, the class division or social division among Jewish communities that the way there was between, let's say, the nobility, the, the, the leaders, the elites, uh, and ordinary people that were looked down upon by the elites. There was much more of a kind of a community-mindedness among the Jewish communities. And the thing is that in a society that was gradually becoming more modernized, and in a modern society, education is super important, and it's, it's a ticket to success, the Jews were well-placed to become successful within Russian society. But at the same time, there was discrimination against the Jews. And, and so those Jews who gained education but were not allowed to work in a wide variety of, of professions. Felt resentment, right? So on the one hand, they there were many professions they couldn't go into, and so a certain large proportion of them were drawn into radical activism. It was always still a minority of the total population, right? And another uh, significant proportion, again minority of the total population, went into um, trade and and commerce and became quite successful so that it could be possible for critics of Jews to claim both on the one hand that they were revolutionaries of which there were a number or many and on the other hand that they were staunch capitalists <laughs> which there were many as well right it's just that they had a society uh, and and social organization that permitted them in a modern society to have a certain amount of success right and that success also bred resentment within the population especially among the elites because the bol- the Many Jews were were threatening their position within society by the mere success of those people, um, and all of that together contributed to and influenced the uh, this kind of myth making, uh, so that these were other people who were another culture that were not true Russians, and and by the de- by that definition were probably uh, treasonous in some way, and at the same time very successful, and at the same time. Uh, involved in the revolutionary activism. And all of that together uh, reinforced these these tendencies we were talking about, or Leon was talking about.
2: And I guess I could just provide one particular example of, uh, again, Jonathan just so eloquently described the complex reality, right, of uh, Russian imperial society and the position of the uh, Jewish communities there and so forth. But look at how cherry-picking how selective mythical mindsets could be one book that is very popular among people who believe in the Judeo Bolshevik myth is the uh, protocols of the elders of Zion right supposedly sort of telling everyone about this plot by the Jews to launch a global revolution and all that well one uh, in one part of that book there is a description of underground tunnels in every major city where the Jews will put the dynamites and stuff like that, and they'll blow up those cities at the same time, right? Which is completely insane, right? And completely, completely uh, counterfactual, right? And yet people just, those people who used the Protocols of the Elders of Zion as a quote-unquote document, which of course was a forgery to validate their views, just ignored those things that they believed were perhaps less uh, reliable and so forth, and cherry-picked what reinforced their mythical Uh, mindsets and their mythical ideas
1: yes sometimes i find that the the more insane the myth is the easier it is for uh for some people to believe it okay so let's get to the next um one of your last myths uh so I, i which was actually the one that i've never heard about and that is the u.s crusade to colonize russia myth and I wonder how did the two of you first hear about it? And speaking of the U.S. Crusades, we often hear about them now in the media or public lectures. I mean, just the term, right, the, the U.S. Crusade, I, I, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Thus, I wonder... Uh, is myth-making unavoidable as part of um, human experience? I mean, speaking, coming back to, uh, I think, Leonid, what you mentioned in the beginning of it, coming back to this idea of, you know, the psychology of myth-making. Uh, and even once humanity becomes more educated uh, and sophisticated, do you think uh, the myths will still exist or or this way we can eradicate them?
2: Yeah. Well, thank you, Paulina. This is such... Important questions, and the first one is easier to answer because we encountered uh, the uh, uh, documents uh, that related to the American Expeditionary Force in Siberia. They are in the National Archives in uh, in uh, uh, Washington, right in uh, uh, in, in uh, the US. They also are there are documents about this in the Russian archives and so forth. But um, at the same time, the reason why I thought it was particularly important to discussed that myth was because of, again, it's one of those broadly defined myth because there was an American expeditionary force in Siberia, as well as in the Murmansk area in the north. Uh, But you can see how often authoritarian regimes Create these types of myths to justify their actions, to declare that their particular country, their particular state is sort of surrounded by enemies, right? And these enemies want to partition and dismember them. And if you look at the current political situation, Vladimir Putin and others talk about that almost on a daily basis, right? And so what we're dealing with here is uh, something that is quite uh, important for different uh, authoritarian leaders. So the particular myths could be different, and this one in particular. Perhaps is not as uh, as uh, pertinent, even though we see references uh, to this myth again and again in the past few years. But the goal. Right. to create the sense of a besieged fortress to create a sense of uh, sort of hostile sort of uh, encirclement right of uh, a lot of enemies out there whoever they are russophobes right or imperialists or whatever right and ultimately to justify and to reinforce one's own authoritarian regime that's a very common and important uh, phenomenon
0: um, the a U.S. intervention, and by the way, it was it was U.S. and and it was British, uh, the Japanese, and the in Siberia as well. So there were a number of countries that did send uh, f- soldiers, for military forces to the Russian periphery, the edges of the Russian empire. Um, they had there were a variety of reasons. As again, one has to imagine that if something like this is happening from a lot of different countries. There are probably a lot of different reasons why they are so engaged. Um, It may well have been seemingly that the Japanese did want to grab some Soviet territory in the Far East. Um, Unlikely and really essentially no evidence that the United States or the British wanted to seize any territory. They had other own reasons, which was to try to keep Russia in the war against Germany, because they were afraid that if Russia, because Russia was out, because German, uh, the Brit- the Bolsheviks took Russia out of the war, this was going to hurt the allied war effort against the Germans, the Germans might win, and then they'd take over Europe, and this would be a problem, and therefore they wanted to, et cetera. I mean, there, there were, they had their reasons, right? But it is the case that, uh, as Lena points out, that the, the Bolsheviks and authoritarian regimes in general like to latch on to such stories in order to justify their own behaviors. And on the one hand, one behavior is to maintain a repressive regime at home because you can't let up your uh, discipline, your harsh discipline, because you're threatened from all around, according to this uh, worldview. And also it justifies attacking abroad. And and you could say, well, there, everyone is out to, to get everyone else, right? And I find oftentimes when Vladimir Putin is talking about this policy or other outside of Russia, that he's actually projecting his own views, that is, or his own uh, policies and actions, right? Claiming that the United States uh, wants to attack uh, Russia when it really didn't want to have anything to do with Russia, wanted to reorient itself toward China. Um, whereas uh, it he's really kind of, in a sense, signaling what his own goals are, namely to attack Ukraine, which he obviously did, right? Anyway.
2: Yeah, well, and the second part of your question, Paulina, I think uh, we uh, uh, need to respond to that also, because uh, you ask uh, whether it's inevitable that people will believe myths and that sort of thing. And um, well, uh, just on one hand, the answer is pessimistic, that yes, many people are going to believe these things no matter what, because they choose to believe them. And one example that relates to what Jonathan just said um, had to do with one of my friends sort of looking at uh, a fake interview by uh, George Bush uh, that was supposedly he declared that Russia must be destroyed and that sort of thing so I Managed to bring uh, that uh, friend of mine to recognize that this was a fake It was not a real interview it didn't happen. I had all traces of sort of forgery and so forth her and his ultimate response was so what is it is fake it could have been true right? <laughs> so that's what we're dealing with so part of my answer is pessimistic and part of it is however optimistic because look some of these myths when we talk about them we shed the light of uh, rationality and reason on them and so when I was writing sort of uh, these book I was keeping in mind those principles, right? The the Enlightenment philosophers have sort of articulated and how people like Voltaire and others sort of used reason, but sometimes also satire and irony and sarcasm to sort of expose some of the bigotry and prejudice of the 18th century sort of uh, societies and so forth. And so you look at some of these examples and yes, this is a tragic story, which is, it, it is a sad story, right? People believing myths and sort of acting on the basis of those myths and so forth. But some of this stuff is really ridiculous when you see, for example, someone who claims to be a surviving uh, Alexei, right, the son of Nicholas, meeting someone who claims to be Grand Duchess Anastasia, and then they pretend to recognize one another, say, "Oh, my dear brother! Oh, my dear sister!" It's ridiculous, right? And it's sort of exposing how ridiculous some of these myths are. Could help us uh, at least sort of protect ourselves against embracing such myths, and maybe help others as well.
1: Or also to have some fun, right? (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. So, okay. So my final uh, question in regards to the myths uh, would be about the last myth, uh, and that is the inevitability of the Bolshevik victory myth, right? And here, I wonder if you can talk about, um, first of all, I, I wanted to say that I was fascinated by this Maria Bochkaryova's case, and maybe... Um, one of you can briefly uh, talk about it and describe why it is central to your story. And also I wanted to ask about, uh, this is my personal interest in history, about this writer's revolution and how it is related to this myth, and why do you think intellectuals like um, famous children's writer Karolenko believed in such myth?
2: Well, I guess I can talk a bit about Boczkarova. And one of the reasons why it is fascinating is that it challenges the established sort of uh, stereotypical view of the Russian Revolution, sort of in the linear terms. The Tsar sort of uh, gives up power, the monarchy collapses, and eventually the Bolsheviks come to power and build communism. And that sort of that creates a sort of a linear uh, an, a sort of view of, of how the Russian Revolution progresses without any alternatives. But the alternatives were there because there were hundreds of thousands of people who had other ideas about what should happen to russia and so much maria butchkorova is one such case of someone uh, to whom this revolutionary era is empowering in many ways right and she believes in the strength of russia in sort of national terms he believes in fighting the germans he becomes a commander of the death battalion and also it helps us shift focus away from some of the male figures in this revolution right towards a broader understanding how This was a popular event, involved so many other key female figures here. And uh, at some point, I really, when I just started working on that particular case, I was wondering how could she develop those combat skills, those sort of that ability, right, to fight the Germans so effectively. And then I read more about her story. And I looked at the situation with her abusive husband then i looked at the situation of a governor who tried to take advantage of her then i looked at how she had to defend herself against other soldiers in various barracks and so i realized that by the time she was meeting the germans she was ready she 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 knew how to fight right and so it's those stories that again on the human level and uh, on the uh, level of diversity, right, helps us understand the Russian Revolution as such a such a sort of multifaceted, uh, complex event. And so we wanted to sort of decenter the Bolsheviks a little bit. Yes, they were the ultimate winners of the Russian Revolution, but at the same time, what about other people who believed other things, right? And uh, there, there are three such examples. And we also sort of try to geographically diversify this sort of story because yes, it starts in Petrograd, but it's a revolution that essentially sweeps across the empire. And Bachkarov is from Siberia, right? Then Upovalov, that worker uh, who uh, supports the Mensheviks, who is strongly against the Bolsheviks and believes in democracy, he uh, lives and works in the Volga region, then the Ural Mountains, then Siberia. Korolenko lives in Ukraine, of course, right? So uh, this, therefore, cumulatively, was meant to remind us that this is a major sort of event that contributes to the... Uh, collapse of the Russian empire with all the diversity that becomes more pronounced until the Bolsheviks try to subjugate this diversity to destroy it and so forth.
0: And I will just add that that chapter could have included, as Leonid is suggesting, hundreds or thousands of different protagonists. Obviously, we had to limit ourselves very drastically and, and couldn't pick all of them and we couldn't even pick all the different categories because you would have had the different ethnic groups right because there were ethnic groups all over the country that declared their independence uh, as separate territories and you had obviously the two genders but you had the different religions uh there were even the Russian Orthodox church was in a sense declaring its Trying to declare its autonomy from the state, which it had been subjected to or whose control it had been subjected to since the time of Peter I, 200 years previously. Um, And and parishes around the country had uh, sort of declared their independence, and the factory workers wanted their uh, control over their factories, and the peasants wanted to control their uh, country, their uh, villages etc 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 all the different categories social e- um, economic cultural religious ethnic etc um, and, and not everybody to the same extent right but there were many many different ideas about liberation change uh, improvement reform that um, millions and millions of, of people members or ci- uh, citizens of the russian Empire of the post-1917, post-Tsarist uh, government and regime and society had about what, how their country should change or how their local uh, government forms should change, right? And right. we had to pick a handful. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah.
1: Interesting. And I thought about this last one, uh, myth, that it's the list mythological one simply because I thought of this um, um, concepts of... Uh, you know, coming from physics, right, who say, some of them, uh, who study time and space, who say uh, things are inevitable. If they happened, then they were inevitable. I mean, I'm going in a a completely different direction, but maybe the Bolshevik victory, um, speaking from, like, this, um, the perspective of big picture was, after all, inevitable. Well, Thank you so much. I think we
2: can't really (laughs) prove that, of course, one way or the other. That's the beauty of history, because we cannot conduct experiments, and therefore all of these views are welcome, right? As they should be.
1: (laughs) Exactly. That's this um, sort of uh, unbelievable lightness of being, right? That (laughs) that history deals with. Um, Yeah. Yeah, so uh, thank you so much. I think we uh, already took um, so much uh, of your time, and f- I would just uh, I would just like to inquire about um, any new projects that maybe you're working on, or maybe a new exciting project that you plan, another collabor- collaboration that you plan to do together. So can you please talk about that as well?
0: Well, I already mentioned my intellectual biography of Richard Pipes, which I sent to a press, and I'm waiting for their decision. And currently, I'm uh, working on a project that a friend of mine, who passed away uh, in 2017, was working on, which was uh, a new translation of Boris Savinkov's memoirs of a terrorist. And when he when he was dying, I promised him that I would I would edit it and finish it. So that's that's what I'm working on now.
2: Yeah. Oh, that's very interesting, and I, uh, I I think it's a fascinating topic. And one other thing that I want to add to that is that in the course of our work over these three books on the Russian Revolution. Uh, uh, Russia in war and revolution, uh, the Russian revolution and global impact uh, is global impact. And then, of course, uh, the seven myths. We have encountered so many great documents and visuals and stuff. And one of the hardest things was, of course, to uh, to to, well, get rid of some of this for the purposes of publication, because we couldn't put everything there. Right. So uh, but we have so much stuff, basically. and so. One idea that we have, that just sort of preliminary idea, is to create a kind of a website, RussianRevolution.org, right, that would actually bring together some of this uh, information and documents and maps and pictures and so forth that we have encountered and uh, that could help uh, students and the broad public have a better sense of the Russian Revolution. So that's what we're thinking about also.
1: So the website is RussianRevolution.org. Is, is it up and running or not well, yet?
2: It's just, as I said, it's just very preliminary. I'm planning to spend a bit more time on this this winter, but only after the grades are submitted. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so right now there's nothing there. Don't go there for now. But bookmark it. There will be stuff there next year. I
1: promise. I see. Very interesting. I'm looking forward to uh, you know, using that website, and I'm looking forward to the new books, Um by Jonathan as well. Well, thank you very much for uh, being here and for discussing uh, the seven myths of Russian Revolution. And again, uh, this uh, was a discussion with Jonathan Daly and Leonid Trofimov of their new 2023 book, Seven Myths of the Russian Revolution. Uh, Thank you, and I'm saying goodbye now. Thank you.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you.